welcome everybody, and thank you for coming out on this rainy afternoon to our new home, uh, Hudson Institute's new home. Uh, we're delighted to uh, have you. Uh, my job uh, here this afternoon is to introduce this spectacular panel that we have uh, and to convene this discussion that we're having on Egypt and its enduring security challenges. We are, as we know, now five years uh, since the popular uprisings in Tahrir Square brought, down, uh, brought about the half collapse of the Egyptian state. And Egypt has seemingly come full circle. The strongman regime of Mubarak has been replaced by the military regime led by General Sisi, which is now consolidating its control in the face of no organized political or institutional opposition. Indeed, the non-Islamist groups which led the 2011 uprisings have been broken and demoralized. Members of them have increasingly been jailed. The Muslim Brotherhood has been decimated. Its supporters um, uh, also jailed, forced underground, its organization destroyed. For all of the talk of Egypt being unique in the Middle East for having a strong sense of national identity and strong indigenous resources, there's no real plan for reconciliation amongst its various factions. Instead, factionalization and fragmentation in society seems to be deepening at the moment. There's no new national compact that seems to be in the offing to bind these uh, various factions together. In fact, there's no real interest in politics uh, when you talk to a lot of uh, people in, in Cairo today. Uh, really, but, but there is uh, sort of uh, an ongoing concern um, uh, that, that people want to keep the country as a whole uh, above the fray and out of the, the wider mess in the region. And for this region, for this reason, uh, General Sisi's rule seems relatively secure. And, but the question that we're asking today and that we're thinking about right now is for how long this could be the case. Um, it appears to many that Egypt will, as it has for decades, just float and it will muddle along in the future. But beneath this general facade of relative calm and stability lies a far more challenging reality. The country, as we know, is facing very systemic political and economic problems and by all accounts things are programmed to get much harder. The expectation was that Sisi would be able to jumpstart the formal economy. But with a highly overvalued pound, there's virtually no investment coming into the formal economy from the outside. The government's focus has instead been on large mega projects. In a way, this is a throwback to the grand projects of the 1960s and the 70s to build a viable national economy. Anyway, those projects failed then to build a viable national economy when Egypt's population was less than 40 million. Now the population is over 90 million and the country is growing at a rate of one and a half million people per year. So there's no real reason to believe that these large-scale mega projects are going to stimulate real national economic growth in the 21st century. Meanwhile, uh, Saudi Arabia and the Emirates have all both emerged as the main benefactors of the Sisi regime uh, since the 2013 uh, uh, rise to power, since the 2013 rise to power. But it's also very clear that their patience with Sisi and others are wearing thin. And besides, the Gulf states have challenging security challenges of their own in their own neighborhood, which is uh, of greater concern to them. Uh, within Egypt itself, frustrations now seem to be growing with the government's lack of vision, 
the Egyptian military in many ways is a very complex social and business enterprise, but it was not up, set up to run a national economy, let alone to govern a country as complex as Egypt. Domestically, uh, what, what some people had hoped would, would, would usher in a, an era of reform of the security services and, uh, 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 and anti-corruption measures has all but stopped. It is not clear that, that um, uh, in fact, uh, the situation on both fronts seems to be getting much worse. And it's not simply that the repression has grown more harsh, but in the view of a lot of people, the repression has grown much, much more erratic. We're under the Mubarak regime. People had a clear sense of what the red lines were and how to behave in public. Uh, the police and a lot of the security services in Egypt are acting in a much, much more arbitrary fashion. Discussions about law and justice seem the farthest from uh, uh, basic reality in Egypt today. I think all this raises real questions about how well Egypt is going to be able to hold up in the face of the new kinds of political and ideological challenges that it's facing in the 21st century. I mean, the, the notion, uh, uh, hybrid, a hybrid offense of the sort that Islamic State is waging right now across North Africa requires a hybrid defense. And as we know, a lot of these ideologically-based movements have shown a great knack at exploiting social tensions caused by, among other things, poor governance and corruption. Obviously, that's not the only driver of radicalism, but it certainly is a weakness. And it's not clear that there's any real plan at the top right now um, uh, to, if you will, close the doors and to create less opportunity for these groups to exploit these weaknesses in Egypt's uh, national body politic. So with these uh, notions, with these uh, uh, thoughts in mind, uh, we've convened a panel. Um, it's a meeting of, of people from various um, tribes, if you will, who work on Egypt policy here in Washington from different perspectives. Um, I've learned a lot from each one of our panelists, and I look forward to hearing what they have to say about uh, uh, our fundamental question, is Egypt secure, and, uh, and how can the United States best deal with this new situation? Uh, our first speaker, I'm going to work down the line, our first speaker is Michael Wahid Hanna, who uh, has come down from New York. He's based at the Century Foundation. <laughs> Uh, our next speaker after that will be Amy Hawthorne, who is the Deputy Director of the Project on Middle East Security. Project on Middle East Democracy. Similar, we, yes, exactly. <laughs> Excuse me. And then next we'll have Mukhtar Awad, uh, who's now at the Program on Extremism at George Washington University. And finally, my colleague at Hudson Institute, Samuel Tadros, a uh, senior fellow here who writes on Egyptian affairs and uh, is working with me on a project on Middle Eastern security. Um, uh, first, Michael. Thanks very much, and uh, thanks for having me. Until very recently, I've, I've, I've thought that Egypt was in a state of what I would call sustainable instability, uh, in the sense that obviously Egypt has not um, been able to um, consolidate a stable uh, transition, and it faces very, very serious political, economic, and security challenges. Um, I'd still come to the conclusion at, until very recently that, that we were still in this phase of sustainable instability um, for several key reasons. Um, I think first among this, uh, among, among these, um, is the fact that um, the political space is <laughs> the political space is, um, is, 
Um, is fragmented in what I think is a sort of structural way. Um, the tactical alliance that brought down Mubarak uh, was fairly broad-based, but very, very shallow, uh, and remained intact for maybe not even 18 days, who knows. Uh, but clearly by uh, February of 2011, when the transition was beginning to take shape, that tactical alliance no longer existed. Uh, and I think that was probably the moment um, where there was a transformational opening that closed because of this fragmentation. Um, that fragmentation has increased since. It is now impossible to imagine a re-engineering of a tactical alliance among reforms, uh, reformist forces and Islamists. Um, there is obviously um, and it would be an understatement to say this, but there is a lot of bad blood uh, such that these are not groups of uh, individuals that can now uh, come together and try to uh, uh, re-engineer uh, a path forward, a political path forward, a reformist path forward um, for Egypt. Uh, among um, non-Islamist political forces, this fragmentation um, is also endemic. Uh, and we saw among these forces a kind of coherence around June 30th uh, and in the days that kind of led up to uh, the July 2013 coup. Uh, but since that time, um, we've seen a fragmented political space. This is partly by design. Uh, we see this in the way that, that the parliamentary elections were run and managed. Um, but there is not... Uh, the regime itself does not want a coherent, functioning, vibrant political space. Uh, it wants people to support their agenda, uh, and they have uh, sidelined uh, most anybody who um, has sought to try to carve um, an independent political profile or independent political path. So that fragmentation has meant that even to the extent that we now have, I think, a growing sense of disaffection and dissatisfaction with the direction of the country, um, there are no vehicles by which to collectivize those uh, sentiments um, and uh, express that dissent in a way that is potentially uh, a threat to uh, the system, a, a threat to the regime uh, itself. Um, and I think that remains the case. And I think that's, uh, I think, in terms of uh, the fundamental limit on political life, it is, it is that fragmentation. Um, second, I think it, there's fatigue. Um, Egyptian society has really been uh, buffeted by what has been you know, almost five years of constant churn, um, just in the terms of the number of elections that Egypt has had, uh, deteriorating security, uh, a lack of certainty, um, and of course, uh, you know, um, uh, lagging uh, economic indicators. We have rising inflation now. Um, business climate is still stunted. We have now a, a hard currency crisis. Um, and so that fatigue, I think, limits uh, to an extent um, the willingness to undertake uh, political risks. Um, and of course, the willingness to undertake political risk has been dented by unstinting repression. Um, it, it's sometimes comforting to think that repression always backfires. It can't work. Um, and in fact, it, it does work sometimes. Uh, it comes at huge costs, uh, but clearly it is a major deterrent to political activism, 
Um, it's very difficult, despite some, some recent signals that um, there is some vitality in certain segments of the population, it's hard to imagine mass mobilization uh, in light of the ways in which uh, protests have been dealt with in recent years, that mass mobilization could be a phenomenon um, that uh, could uh, recohere and, and, and again pose a threat to the regime in, in the streets. Um, and so repression has been quite um, uh, quite effective in, in reinstilling fear, um, uh, and, and in, in some cases, you know, it, repression has actually far exceeded, um, as Eric was mentioning, far exceeded um, the kind of boundaries that people were used to during the Mubarak regime. There are no red lines. Um, it's very difficult to uh, to understand where repression will lead. Uh, and it is not a centralized repression. Um, this is not a consolidated regime. Um, this is a regime that is balkanized, it is fragmented. Uh, it is a mistake to think that this is a top-down process um, of repression where individual decisions uh, are in conformity with instructions from the very highest levels of leadership. Uh, we can say that the CC regime has created an enabling environment for this repression, but I think it's clear in certain instances that, that this has really gone off the rails and created problems that um, the CC regime has then had to, to deal with and, and had to clean up. And, and I think that's you know, an important insight into, um, into the ways in which decision-making um, is made or not made. Um, and so, in the interest of time, I'll... Um, you know, the regime the regime is not consolidated, and I think that's um, become clearer over the past weeks. Uh, and it's it's both important to understand that, but it's also quite problematic um, in the sense that it, it's hard. You know, it is a convenient excuse for the CC regime to rely on this this um, this disassociation from all uh, decisions. Um, but as we see with, this, with the recent uh, clampdowns, escalating clampdowns by uh, MOI, um, and I think increased tensions, um, and, and uh, you, know, you do get the sense that, this, that uh, internal rivalries within the regime are, uh, are sharpening. Um, and this is one of the, the, the things that has led me to reconsider. I, I don't think that Egypt is on the, on the precipice of uh, of a kind of revolutionary moment uh, or an opening. Uh, but there is something that has happened in, in past weeks um, that is shifting to a degree. Uh, and we see this in the media landscape. We've seen really quite surprising and, and very forthright and outspoken uh, critiques of the CC regime. Uh, and these are, not, uh, these are not critiques coming from the usual quarters. Uh, this isn't uh, Muslim Brotherhood outlets. Uh, these are people like Ahmed Adib, who is, you know, is a stalwart supporter of uh, of the coup, a stalwart supporter of Sisi, uh, who are now coming out and and uh, and critiquing uh, the the killing of uh, the Italian doctoral student uh, just several weeks ago, um, and and so boundaries are being um, uh, broken again. Uh, we see critiques now of um, of freedom expression, the clamping down of freedom expression. 
Uh, we've seen the doctor syndicate launch, launching uh, protests about treatment by uh, doc doctors by the police. Um, and so there is this slight shift. Um, I think all of these kind of structural and fundamental constraints remain, um, but you, I do get the sense that Egypt is, is now coming out of one phase and, and entering another. Uh, again, I, I don't think that this is indicative of um, fundamental realignment. I don't think that we're uh, at the cusp of course correction. Um, but we do see this, this much broader uh, disaffection. Um, and, and it's, I think, clear that broad segments of the populace um, are beginning to be concerned about the fundamental competence of the government, their ability to execute, uh, execute basic, uh, the basic job of governance. Um, and and, and I'll, I'll end here, but um, this is not the Mubarak regime. This isn't the reimposition of the, of the status quo ante. Um, this is a very different disposition. Um, Egypt wasn't a military regime when Mubarak was toppled. Uh, the military had been increasingly distanced from politics, really even starting in the, the Nasser era in certain ways, accelerating under Sadat, continuing under Mubarak, uh, when uh, a very pra uh, very charismatic defense minister was was sacked in 1987, you really had uh, the the consolidation of the Mubarak regime and and the concentration of authority in uh, the office of the presidency. Um, the military was increasingly distanced from political life, uh, and we see that now because uh, you know this is not a military accustomed to governance. It doesn't know how to do it. Uh, nor would one expect it to, uh, but it has no experience in governance, and, and that is showing up in, in quite fundamental ways. Um, and, and then lastly, there is real opacity in terms of how this regime functions. Um, it is a very closed circle. Uh, there is not a lot of engagement with the public, um, and I think that's led to a lot of, of disquiet and concern about, about this drift. Um, and. Um, and, I, and I do think, again, we're, we're entering a slightly different phase than where we have been, I think, really for about two years. Uh, and, and I think that's an important um, trend to watch in, in the coming future. Thank you very much. Amy. Uh, thank you. Can everyone hear me? Good afternoon. And thanks to Hudson for inviting us to their uh, gorgeous new offices. It's going to be hard to go back to my little plain office this afternoon after visiting here. Uh, so how do we understand uh, what's going on in Egypt and what should the U.S. do about it? What can the U.S. do about it? Uh, my overarching recommendation is that the U.S. needs to deal with reality, the reality of its relationship with Egypt and the reality of what's going on in Egypt and not engage in wishful thinking. The first reality that the United States needs to base its policy around is, of course, uh, Egypt remains important to the US because of Sinai, because of its peace treaty with Israel, because of Suez Canal passage, because of overflights, a certain amount of counterterrorism cooperation, because Egypt is a very large country. All those reasons remain the same as they have for decades. But Egypt does not uh, comport, the reality of Egypt today does not comport with the hyperbole that Secretary Kerry often uses and used uh, just uh, last week in the, his recent remarks when Foreign Minister Shukri was visiting. 
Secretary Kerry said that Egypt is a leader of the Arab world, that it plays a critical role in the fight against ISIS and on Syria. And that is just simply not true. Egypt's regional role has in, been in decline for a long time, and that decline has sharply accelerated since 2011. It doesn't have the ability or even the desire in some ways to play a really influential regional role. And I would argue that the US doesn't even really have a strong partnership with the Egyptian government. We have a tactical relationship where we cooperate on certain core interests of both countries. But even that cooperation is often very difficult, very scratchy, as US officials often say, and very hard, even on issues where we have important core interests. The second key reality, I think, to take into account is to be honest with ourselves about what is happening inside Egypt. And as Michael and Eric both describe, uh, Egypt today, in many respects, is it's a very grim picture in Egypt today, very dark days. And almost all of the major trends, if not all of the major trends, are negative. That doesn't mean that there aren't positive things happening in Egyptian society or around the edges, but in terms of the most important indicators in Egypt, I believe that all those trends are negative. And I think that uh, it, it is heading in a, in a dangerous, a slow but dangerous direction, and that we need to look at and analyze Egypt on its own terms, not in comparison to the chaos in Libya and the war in Syria or the war in Yemen. Of course, Egypt is far more stable than those places, and we can be glad for that. But when we look at Egypt on its own terms, in terms of what uh, many Egyptians, millions of Egyptians, demonstrated for in 2011 and the kind of country that they wanted, uh, Egypt is doing very badly indeed. And I'll just mention three areas of concern. First is in the political realm. Secretary Kerry said when he was speak, uh, meeting with uh, Foreign Minister Shukri that Egypt is undergoing a transformation politically. And it is, but not of the kind that Secretary Kerry was referring to. It is going, undergoing a transformation or maybe an intensification of long-running trends that have been in place uh, for many decades uh, toward more, much more of a military and security-backed regime. Uh, this, this is a political regime that although fragmented and balkanized, as Michael said, really is dominated by military and security actors. And civilians are being more and more squeezed out, not just citizens who are being repressed, but civilians in the power structure, in the government, they are being squeezed out more and more of uh, decision making. This, the next sentence I'm about to say might sound a bit um, hyperbolic itself, but in some ways, the, the Sisi regime is showing a few, I would say, totalitarian tendencies. It's not a totalitarian, a totalitarian government, of course. But in its um, refusal to accept any form of dissent and the links at which it's willing to go to repress certain actors in Egyptian society who really pose no threat <laughs> to security of the state or of the Egyptian people, I would say there are some totalitarian warning signs there. Um, we know about the intense repression, the levels of brutality, the out-of-control police. And I think what has really caught so many people's, captured so many people's attention about the murder of the Italian PhD student, uh, Giulio Oregeni, recently is that, first of all, this is what's happening to Egyptians on a weekly basis. It just isn't being publicized, um, uh, being uh, tortured and abused and killed by security agencies, as many believe is the case with Giulio. Uh, and also because it does cross a red line that this could happen to a foreigner. This really is a red line for the Egyptian government. 
Um, European and US officials to whom I've spoken privately say they are convinced that the security agencies were behind his murder, which if this does come to be true, and we don't know yet, would be a truly, truly alarming development and should make us really question um, what we're basing this uh, security partnership with Egypt around. The shutting down of all politics, except a very limited realm of pro-state politics, is a very concerning trend. And finally, I would just mention in the political realm, President Sisi has received a lot of attention and praise from some quarters about his, um, for his speech, I guess it was last December when he talked about the need to, or two Decembers ago, promote a new a reformed religious Islamic discourse and to reform Islam. And those were important words, but the actions of his government run completely counter to that. And there's been a huge increase in blasphemy prosecutions and freedom of expression prosecutions and prosecutions and sending people to prison for thought crimes, um, not actually of, of Islamists, not of radical Muslims who are um, you know, putting forth a discourse of jihad, but of novelists, um, professors, scholars. Th th this is a very, very concerning trend and should really make us question what, what he's really talking about, Sisi, when he talks about reforming Islam. Is that really his intention or is it really about a power struggle against uh, the Muslim Brotherhood? Secondly, on the economy, as has been mentioned, all of the trends are very negative here. Egypt still struggles with its long-running fiscal crisis, which has ebbed and flowed, but it has been facing for decades, which essentially is that it's, uh, it doesn't bring in enough revenue to pay for its expenditures. And many of its government's expenditures are really locked up in subsidies um, and other kinds of expenses that to change and reform are politically explosive. And so obviously the government is very hesitant about moving forward on those things, but in the meantime, because of the security situation, because of a drop in foreign investment, because of a drop in tourism, so on and so forth, it's not bringing in enough income. And so it has a huge budget, budget deficit, which it continues to finance, of course, by borrowing. And this is just an unsustainable situation over the next few years. They are facing a, a hard currency crisis, as Michael said, and they have to import wheat <laughs> to feed their people. This is actually goes to the heart of the security of the Egyptian regime, if people can be fed. On job creation, the Egyptian government seems to have no plans, no policies, no ideas how to address this perennial problem. Um, in some statistics I look at, employment, unemployment of educated youth is 40%. I read a statistic yesterday um, that among educated women, unemployment is 57%. These are crisis figures, and the Egyptian government has put forward no plan to deal with them. And finally, we need to remember that Egypt is a poor country, and 50% of its people live at or below the poverty line, and about 26% of, of those people live in extreme poverty. And none of those statistics are getting better. They're all getting worse. And so for the majority of Egyptians, life is actually getting harder. I won't say really much on the security situation, because I think uh, Mukhtar and maybe Sam will touch on that, but needless to say that there is, Egypt is facing a very complex insurgency, proto-insurgency, as Mukhtar has written, um, with um, a fighting force and a military and security agencies that sometimes seem overwhelmed how to deal with the problem and are pursuing targets who are often different than the ones we would 
uh, think would be the main targets. One example, uh, Hossam Bakyat, who's a very well-known writer, human rights activist today, just was informed that he has a travel ban on leaving Egypt. How does it help Egypt's security to uh, pursue prosecution against him? He's the kind of person, actually, who's critical to Egypt's long-term struggle to fighting against radicalism and jihadism. So this is what I mean by going after the wrong target. What should the US do? In just a few brief minutes. The US influence in Egypt is, is limited. Um, it's not non-existent, but it is limited. We can't change the trajectory of Egypt. Egypt is on a path of its own choosing. And I don't see any signs that the government or large segments of the population want a course correction or seek US help in making a course correction. Um, Egypt, I think, is going through a moment. In some ways, there are real signs of xenophobia in this society. This is not a country that's like reaching out for help from the West or from the outside world beyond wanting aid. And the US, as we know, has made so many of its own missteps over the past five years, constantly shooting itself in the foot, eroding its own influence and capabilities in Egypt that we're not a very strong actor. Uh, but there are, there are a few things I think we can do. Um, the first, and I would say generally my overarching point here is that the sort of guiding principle of our policy toward Egypt for the next few years should really be to do, do no harm. <laughs> Um, the first, uh, first point is I don't think we should overinvest in this regime. I don't know if it's unstable, but I, don't, I can't argue that it is stable, and I think it would be a bad idea for the United States to invest too much time, resources, military equipment in the CC regime. I think that would be a bad bet. Secondly, I think that the US actually does need to push hard and push consistently on a few key sort of core human rights issues. The US is very schizophrenic about its human rights policy in Egypt. At times, it makes these incredibly strong statements, and then the next day, it goes silent. Um, I think we would be better served by just focusing more consistently on a few key issues and sticking with them over time. And those key issues, in my, to my mind, include the repression of civil society, the uh, conditions inside Egyptian prisons, and the abuse that is alleged to be uh, going on and freedom of expression. I think those are the things that the US should really be focusing on. And I don't want to argue that just by speaking out and pressing the Egyptian government on this, we're going to change Egypt's trajectory. But I think that if the US pushes on those issues, we're right to do so because they are real, real concerns. And if Egypt doesn't improve its record, it's not going anywhere good. So the US, especially because we give $1.5 billion of aid, we do have a stake in what happens and we do have a right to say something. Um, and third, I think we need to really redo, rethink and redo our aid packages. On the economic side, we're not giving Egypt nearly as much aid as we used to, just about $150 million a year compared to a billion dollars 20 years ago in economic aid. But it's not nothing. And in this era of shrinking foreign aid budgets, that is still you know, a sizable amount of money. How should we use it? I think we should target all those resources toward building the human capital of the Egyptian people in terms of health and education and welfare. We should move away completely from programs that try to work with the government and change or influence their economic policies, so on and so forth. That's a non-starter. And over 30 years of aid, we've achieved a very little. The Egyptian government sometimes doesn't want to cooperate with us on these human welfare programs. And they actually block US assistance programs in higher education for scholarships, for vaccinations. They actually don't let us pursue our programs to help the Egyptian people. In that case, we should just pull out and reprogram the money and give it to Tunisia. 
or another deserving country. If Egypt isn't a willing partner for the US taxpayer dollars, then we shouldn't um, spin our wheels. And finally, on military aid, we are restructuring our military aid to shift it more towards counterterrorism, border security. But I think what, we, what, I, what I would argue is that what Egypt really needs is not more equipment, not more weapons. They really need help in changing the way that they address their security and how they fight terrorism. And the US is trying to build a partnership with Egypt in this regard. Will Egypt accept that help? I don't know. I would argue that if they, that if they don't want to accept that help, I'm not sure how useful uh, all of these weapons will be. And they could even be counterproductive if they're not used in the right way. So thank you. Thank you. That was terrific. Mukhtar. Thank you, Eric and Sam, for, for inviting me. Always a pleasure to uh, come here at Hudson. And uh, congrats on the new office. Always a pleasure to be on the same panel as uh, Michael and, and Amy. Um, I am going to focus on the security, actual security side of the question, uh, how secure is Egypt? Um, and uh, in my comments, uh, when Sam first approached me on this, uh, he said he wanted to think about the future, not just the next year, but the next few years. And so some of my comments uh, try to frame things in that way. What should we look for uh, in the future? When it comes to the insurgency, as uh, Amy uh, said, um, what is happening, uh, insurgency or proto-insurgency or whatever we want to call it, um, is the most complex and the deadliest in Egypt's modern history. Um, the, uh, to, to qualify that, just to give you a sense of the, of the numbers, since July 2013, when the coup happens, uh, until the end of January, uh, about 755 security uh, service members uh, have been killed uh, by jihadists. These are uh, people who I've been able to verify by name and rank. Um, there could be more, um, but this is, this is what we have. It's about 70-30 uh, when it comes to where um, these uh, casualties have been uh, taken, the 70 in the Sinai. 30 in the mainland, and it gives you an indication that uh, in the mainland, things have been slowly escalating over the last uh, two years or so. Uh, and just uh, since we're on the numbers, 18% of those killed have been officers. It's a low number, um, has been increasing um, over the last uh, six months or so, especially in the Sinai, more officers have been killed. Obviously, this is significant. Um, the more officers that are paying with their lives, the uh, more attention that is paid. Um, as my numbers show, of course, that means over 80% are conscripts. And generally, to speak frankly, for Egyptian government, that is something that can be replenished. And with that being said, uh, my main point uh, for all of this is that the sky is not necessarily falling when it comes to the security situation. Uh, it could be a lot worse. I have to compare it to Syria and Iraq and, and Libya when it comes to this specific issue. Um, but if things do not change in how the government is approaching um, uh, this uh, problem, it definitely can get a lot worse. And the other thing that I want to do is, is map the problem. Um, one of the, the helpful ways I have uh, been speaking about this and look, looking at this is that the complex environment is divided into three uh, geographic categories. 
And there's also three different types of groups operating. Very quickly, obviously, we have the Sinai, the mainland, this is the Nile Valley, and it's the most critical uh, of, uh, 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 of the geographic theaters. And the final one is, of course, the Western Desert. When it comes to the three types of groups in the Sinai, there is now the Islamic State, uh, Salafi, Jihadi uh, group, of course, and there's Islamic State operating in the mainland, and to a very, very small extent, um, they have been trying to have some form of, of presence in the Western Desert. The second type of group is also Salafi Jihadi, but would be Al-Qaeda linked, although Al-Qaeda has not had as much um, uh, ability to establish a solid foothold uh, as IS has. Uh, of course, there's many reasons for that we can get into, but Al-Qaeda linked operatives or Al-Qaeda leaning operatives, if you will, um, would tend to be in the mainland area, although there is um, a, a small alleged presence in the Sinai, but is really negligible. They claim to be there, but there isn't really much evidence of that. The final group is an interesting grouping, and that is something that has uh, been taking shape uh, again over the last two and a half years. Uh, that's what I call a very clunky way, violent, non-jihadi, or non-Salafi jihadi, sorry, uh, groups. Um, these are groups that have popped up, taken different names, different forms. Uh, basically, uh, first we're engaging in anarchic type violence, more sabotage, using Molotovs, um, assassinating officers on and off, um, and then started to form into groups. The one distinct group that did form was called Revolutionary Punishment. Um, was very organized compared to all the other groups that have come out. And generally, this is a group of actors that are not as lethal as the as rest, um, but uh, there is still the possibility that they could pose a greater risk in the future. What they lack is actually not necessarily the will, uh, but rather the weapons, the training, um, and, and the money, of course to be able to execute these types of operations. And what also they've lacked is a framework for, an ideological framework for their violence. The Muslim Brotherhood or other Salafis that are not Salafi jihadis by definition are not people who've dwelled on the issue of how to reconcile violence with their creed. However, over the last year, um, I've seen, as I've recently wrote about in uh, Foreign Affairs, an article uh, about the specific issue, there is an attempt to write a form of what's called a ta'seel shari, or ideological sharia ground-based justification for the violence uh, of reconciling a brotherhood creed, for lack of a better term, um, with, with violence. And just to give you an idea, instead of labeling Sisi and uh, company as apostates, they would label them as seditionists who are also enemy companions, and therefore we can still kill them without calling them apostates and being just like the Salafi jihadis. In other words, there's this, these attempts to try and copy the violence with, with, without having to change into being uh, IS. The big idea here is that IS, or Salafi Jihadism for that matter, uh, is not and, and should not be looked at as the only possible manifestation of organized Islamist violence. And I'll go rather quickly for um, the, 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 the main three points I wanted to make. Based on what I just said, um, one of the key problems that we see today, or I should say I, I see today, is that there is no CT 
strategy to speak of, let alone a CVE strategy to, to speak of in Egypt. This is something actually that most in the Egyptian government, or, or at least intellectuals, um, would admit to. Uh, and the key thing is that they need better analytical tools in analyzing this very complex situation. Doesn't have to adopt my framing. They obviously have more access to information. But the problem is if you keep mixing together the, the different groups, if you are not able to uh, understand the differences, um, you are not going to be able to devise the smartest possible strategies to, as I write in uh, a paper put out with a colleague in October, Carnegie, uh, a divide and conquer, if you will, strategy for this very, uh, again, complex uh, uh, insurgency environment. And also, you're not able to devise a way to stem the tide of ISIS recruitment in the Egyptian mainland. Uh, thus far, from what I have been able to track and see, uh, there is a small, obvious presence of IS-affiliated um, or pro-IS elements in the greater Cairo area. Um, the Egyptians have been thus far very good at eliminating them um, through using Facebook uh, social engineering. Um, they would kidnap, if, if they arrest someone, they would get him to log on and you know, drag his, uh, his, his affiliate, his, 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 um, his friends. Um, but there isn't really a process, I don't know what's going on with that. There's not really a process. Does that work? Yeah. There isn't really a process to try and figure out, well, how do we stop them from joining ISIS? How do we stop them from uh, going down that path? Uh, but rather, they're utilizing a very security-heavy approach that at some point is, not, is no longer going to be sufficient. The, the second major point I wanted to make, this is more along the lines of the looking to the future. Um, somebody like myself was trying to look holistically at uh, security in Egypt. What are the kind of trends that I would be looking for or looking at uh, to assess if things are getting better or, or worse? When it comes to the Sinai, after in the last six months there was a major campaign that the, the military executed. Um, naturally, as any campaign would, there would be some form of, of, of results, but those results shown were shown to, to be not sustainable, uh, to put it uh, charitably. Um, and so even when they go in heavy uh, with some of their, their new um, formations in place, there's a so-called rapid deployment force uh, uh, that they're now deploying in this, uh, or they, they have deployed in this military exercise in northern Saudi Arabia. Even when they do deploy that, they are able to get results. However, the results only would last for a few weeks, a few days. Um, but once these elite forces will pull out, the same intractable problems uh, that exist on the ground are not necessarily fixed. And so would IS declare territory? That is a question that I would ask myself. Um, because the significance of holding territory when it comes to a group like IS is if they can declare that they've held that territory. Because the significance of the territory is that they're contesting state sovereignty as opposed to just literally having a piece of land. And so that's the major thing to look for. Are they going to be contesting uh, state sovereignty? Are they going to be enforcing um, Sharia, what they call Hizbah? 
Um, they have been, today for instance, they posted uh, central ISIS that they've seized a shipment of heroin, um, which again, to give you an indication that they're trying to act as if they might have the same level of control that they have in Libya, that they have in Syria and Iraq and the Sinai. That doesn't seem to be the case if we compare them to these other theaters, but that's something to look at, not just the day-to-day -day bombings, and of course if those escalate, that's a problem, but if at the end of that they are actually left with territory, they're left with the ability to enforce Hezbollah and, and contest state sovereignty, that is the, 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 the major trend. And the mainland, again, looking at the expansion of IS in the greater Cairo area, um, if they are able to co-opt more violent actors on the ground that have thus far perhaps been involved in the anarchic violence that I described earlier, um, that would be uh, another kind of trend to look for. And also, if these violent non-Salafi non jihadi actors, like revolutionary punishment and so on, come back where other groups with the same uh, uh, kind of ideological disposition, um, and are they actually acting out what they said that they'll be acting out, and that is creating uh, clandestine uh, uh, cells to engage in guerrilla warfare against the Egyptian government. That's a long way off. Um, but again, if these are, are, are not uh, contained, uh, you may be left in, in, this, in this direction. Finally, if more sectarian attacks are going to happen. Thus far, that hasn't been a priority, although it's very easy in reach. There is simply nothing stopping them. Um, also, if they're attacking more foreign interests, um, as, as, as well. and, and finally, if they're establishing a linkage between the West and the Sinai, because obviously IS operating in the Sinai, IS operating in Libya, would want to build up that presence in the mainland to be able to connect both. In the West, thus far, it's been mostly about smuggling routes um, and uh, control over these smuggling routes. IS activity has largely been along those lines. The one person that they did decapitate, another person that was killed uh, by them were locals who were working as trackers for the Egyptian military uncovering the, the, the smuggling routes. And so the trend is, are they going to move beyond that? Are they going to be trying to set up shop? Are they going to try to use the West as a launching pad for attacks? Are they going to be setting up training camps and storing weapons? These are the kind of qualitative things one should look at rather than just you know, frequency of incidents or, um, uh, or, 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 or something along those lines. In one and a half minute, two minutes, um, on, on, on the US approach. Um, I unfortunately, I'm going to be a bit tactical sounding. Um, and my, my approach when it comes to looking at this specific issue is that it's bigger than Sisi or his regime. Um, when we talk about our security interests in Egypt and what should be done on the security front. And I was surprised to see that some of the recommendations I put in a report with a colleague of mine, Brian Katulis, at the Center for American Progress last year, still generally seem to hold true. And basically, our idea then, after a trip to Egypt meeting different security officials, was that there actually has to be some form of, we can't, we shouldn't necessarily call it conditioning or have to use the word conditioning, but benchmarks when it comes to the security side of things. When we're talking security, if we're going to release to you weapons, if we're going to give you weapons that you want, uh, so on, um, sure, the question shouldn't be, are you uh, democratizing and therefore we're going to give you weapons? That's perhaps the wrong approach. It 
confuses things. It should be on a security. Are you doing good with what we've given you? If not, that's a problem. And that should be, I think, the general way um, that the, the US, and, and here it's a role for the Pentagon, not for the State Department, to talk CT, to talk uh, uh, you know, uh, military uh, uh, readiness uh, with the Egyptian military. Um, and also, it's a good thing that by 2018, there's supposed to be this uh, new, new approach, but you can't wait till 2018. So we have to, you know, policymakers should think about what can be done in the interim period if it comes to specific training that the Egyptians, uh, especially special forces, would need. Whatever that training, by the way, also, I should say, I'm told, uh, it's not an issue just of the training. The training has to be serious. Um, that's a, that's a key issue, actually, because uh, a lot of times uh, Egyptian servicemen who, who would go through these trainings may not necessarily come out with greater um, experience than, than they were coming, coming in. Um, and so Egypt has certain partners in the region, like the UAE, that do have certain ISR capabilities, certain weapon systems, and so on. Perhaps there should be a way for getting Egypt to procure that from uh, the Emiratis or, 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 or elsewhere, um, and kind of, in a way, getting them into a mindset that what their focus should be in the next well, few years is ISR and, again, serious training. The issues dealing with what are we going to do with the uh, $1.5 and what weapon systems, that's going to come you know, come 2018, that process should be thought about, should about uh, now. But we should also, uh, again, that's why I mean by standing tactical, think about the next two years um, and what kind of benchmarks that we can set to hold the Egyptian military accountable on a military security level. Um, because if we are not able to get them to together, um, we are going to suffer the consequences of that. And a final point, another thing that we also realized is that CT or CVE, if it comes to that ever, in Egypt is not just in the military. There are, as you know, other security services, the MOI, the GID, and so on. And there should be some level of engagement with those people. That's not positive engagement, but I'm talking here about talking with them, seeing what they need. If you do talk to them, they'll tell you they need certain things. So we should ask ourselves, well, if we give them these kind of things, what can we get in return? To try and build relationships with these different security services um, that are also, again, very influential in how terrorism is fought in Egypt, and again, whether or not we can condition, when it comes to security-related things, um, aid that we give them um, in exchange for certain results that we want to see. And I'll stop it here. Terrific. Thank you. Thank you. Samuel. I hope this works well. Three years ago or more, when um, President Morsi appointed Sisi as his defense minister, everyone in Egypt was asking himself, who is this guy? Um, rumors were floating that the man was a secret member of the Muslim Brotherhood. After all, he had accepted the removal of his leadership, uh, Field Marshal Tantawi, and he seemed to be someone that the Brotherhood is depending on. As Sisi removed Morsi a year after that from office and crushed the Brotherhood, 
And as he emerged as the contender, the candidate, and the, the president of Egypt, the question became much more important. Everyone had his own theory about who Sisi was. He was Mubarak, again, we were recreating the state of Mubarak. Or he was the re-emergence of Nasserism in Egypt. After all, this cult of personality that had emerged around him was very, for those aware of Egyptian history, pointed very clearly to Nasser. Or he was Sadat, who was going to change Egypt's trajectory. He was, after all, willing to work with the Israelis in ways that Egyptian leaders had not in the past. So all these comparisons were floating around. It's now uh, 21 months since Sisi has uh, assumed the Egyptian presidency. And in this sense, enough of a time to judge what kind of a man Sisi is. What are his basic uh, beliefs about power, about politics, about the country's direction, and what they mean to us as we look at Egypt's future in five years, 10 years from now. The first thing to say about the, the man himself is the way he interprets what, happens in 2000, what happened in 2011. Namely, why did those Egyptians revolt and bring down the Mubarak regime? In his mind, and I would generalize this and I'd say it's the military mindset in general, it is not that Mubarak had been repressive and thus people revolted. It's actually the reverse. People revolted at the particular time when Mubarak had opened up the country. Pressure by the Bush administration following 9-11, the um, allowing foreign funding for civil society, holding elections, a freer press. This last decade of Mubarak, it's the opening of the country politically that led to the revolt and not the reverse. What this naturally means, if you want to avert a second revolution in the country, is you need to close the country. If Mubarak's fault was that he had opened the country to the world, allowed the Americans to fund all those destructive movements of civil society and activists, then the solution is to cut that funding. So that's the first thing about the general mindset there. The second is that this is a man that has come from the barracks to the presidency. Nasser had been involved in uh, various uh, political activism with various parties before joining the military, conducting his own coup in 52. Sadat had had a distinguished political history. Sisi, like Mubarak in this sense, comes with zero political experience to office. And in his mind, it's not an aversion to democracy in general. It's, it's much more general than this. It's an aversion to the very idea of politics. The country is to be run like the barracks are run. Orders are given, subordinates are implementing them, and things are going to happen that way. Egypt's generals, with uh, an army of slave conscripts, are not used to the idea of things not being feasible. All you need to do as a general is to basically tell them to do it, and it will be done. How, who pays the price, how much it costs, these are all details that the generals are not involved in. So that's the second thing about the mentality. The third is naturally an aversion to civilians. 
And who would blame him? It's the fighting between the civilians that happened from 2011 till 2015 that shows that this whole political game of, of politics and, and fights, these politicians really care about their own interests. It's only us, the military, that really have the national interests of Egypt at heart. So if I need to depend on people to manage the state, now that I moved from the army to the presidency, the only guys I can really trust are my former colleagues in the military. It's no surprise, then, that we don't see any civilian politicians emerging as advisors to Sisi or people around him. The only names we know around him are those of his former colleagues that he trusted and worked with for years in the military. Another point that's become clear is this Nasserite obsession with large projects. The idea that you need something humongous, monumental, something life-changing in the life of Egyptians to enter history. Nasser had entered history as the guy who nationalized the Suez Canal, built the high dam. Sadat had done the 73 war. Sisi doesn't want Mubarak's legacy of small infrastructure projects, slow economic growth, but nothing more than that. For Sisi, there's this obsession with he wants to build another pyramid. We take the, the pharaonic mindset there. This has, obsession has led us to projects like the new Suez Canal, which all experts have pointed out would be a complete failure. And nonetheless, the, he was pushing for it and forced them to do it on an accelerated uh, program in order to have this achievement to the size of the world. If Ismail had done the first Suez Canal and opened it to the world, that was Sisi's or Egypt Sisi's gift to the world. Next comes his understanding of economics. The man, as a military officer, has had very little understanding of what economics is. He had uh, been a small, uh, worked in his father's shop selling some antiques to foreigners, but that was the extent of his understanding of how a modern economy works. The result has been a failure to have any economic vision for the country. People, investors, would see one day a law that is very encouraging for investors, removing many of the legal restrictions. The next day, they'd see another law that's completely contradictory. Which of them is Sisi? Is he a man that uh, we have seen has removed the subsidies? Or is he the man that's putting restrictions on those investments? That kind of double language, this inability to have a clear economic vision, has obviously had its ramifications on the country, as we see today, the black uh, rate for the US dollar is rising. The difference now between the official rate and the official rate is about 15% of the All of these problems economically are a reflection of a lack of a clear vision of what to do in the country economically. The last comment I'd say about Sisi's mindset and, and style is his lack of active management of the various agencies of the state. Now, this is a very interesting um, mindset for com someone who comes from a military background. Sisi, as someone who hopes and, and dreamt of rebuilding the state apparatus after its, the blows it received in 2011, has really overseen a management style that each individual institution or body of the state agency is simply operating on its own. 
Uh, Michael used the, the term balkanization. It's, it's individual fiefdoms run by different individuals. And yes, there is this president there who is setting the vision for everyone. But everything else, there is no direct management of this. This is extremely different from Hosni Mubarak, who, of course, Fuad Ajami had famously described as a civil servant with the rank of president, a man who was involved in the daily management routines of the country in all the details there. What does all of this mean to us about Egypt's future? I'd say a couple of points here. First, the state unraveling, the institutional unraveling of Egypt is something that is going to continue. We are going to continue to see these individual fiefdoms, the, military, the Ministry of Interior Officers as a uh, caste, as a group that has its special interests and defends it. The judges are another group. The military is obviously one. The, um, the, even the, the police assistants are now defending their own interests. This group balkanization, again, of that Egyptian state is something that I think is going to continue. It's not something that would lead to a complete collapse of the state a la Iraq, Syria, and Libya, but it would mean a slow deterioration. The second thing is that all the red lines that were there in governing the political game in the country have completely changed. As Amy has mentioned, there are no red lines at the moment. Um, if you're Italian, that doesn't mean that you can't get arrested, tortured, your nails taken off, electrified, and killed, and thrown your body in the middle of the street. If at the same time, in this arbitrary nature of the authoritarianism that we're seeing, you might be a, an actual threat to re the regime, a political activist, and you're not actually getting tortured in jail. If that doesn't make any sense to anyone, that the fact that a famous or an, a political activist might not get tortured, and this random Italian guy would, that's, in a sense, the very nature of this arbitrary uh, kind of regime that we are having now in Egypt. And, and I think that's something that needs to be said very clearly, and um, I think Michael also mentioned it, we're not going to see a revolution in Egypt. People are tired of this constant state of uncertainty. They're tired of the upheavals. They're tired about the loss of income, of jobs, of all of this. And again, as Michael pointed out, this political compact that created the environment for 2011, this alliance of Islamists and non-Islamists, is not going to happen in the future. But we are going to see the rise of localized protests against the regime. Again, balkanized protests against the regime. We've seen this in Luxor with clashes with the police over the killing of um, a citizen. We've seen it in Darb al-Ahmar where we've seen the doctor protest. These localized focal points we're going to have more frequently in Egypt. They will be um, uh, sometimes sectarian. They will be sometimes uh, professional in terms of the, the various syndicates and, and professions of the country. They will be local, pertaining to particular villages or cities. But we're going to see these very frequently in the future. Two, the last two comments I would say. The last two points is, first, when Sisi came to power on the, with the support and uh, the hopes of many of the countries in the Gulf, 
who thought that there was something there. They were going to invest in Egypt and things would be dramatically changing in the country. The realization is hitting the Gulf today that, well, things are not not only because in uh, the eyes of Saudi Arabia, the Sisi regime is unwilling to take a similar position to theirs, or its unwillingness to take an active engagement in the conflict in Yemen, but the general incompetence of the regime, even in Turkey, is worrying to all of the regime allies. And that's something that's going to impact their willingness to offer financial um, uh, help to the regime as it struggles economically. The last point is that for much of Egypt's history, the military had been an institution you could depend on. It was the one um, element of the state, the one organization that was popular. Since 67, since the Egyptian military's decision to disengage from politics, it was an institution that, due to the fact that Egyptians from all walks of life are conscripted in it, due to the fact of its nationalist um, character, all of these things, the institution was heavily respected. Today, the Egyptian military is not this faraway institution in people's life. It's the guy who's actually building the bridge in your own village. It's the guy who's actually doing all these kinds of projects in your neighborhood. That direct contact with the military officers is a problem for the future. And it's going to be a serious problem. Because for the first time, you're going to see, well, they're not as competent as we thought they were. You know, there's this bridge that just fell that they had built seven months earlier. Well, what does that mean about their efficiency? The fact that the military is going to be exposed as inefficient, as incompetent, as the rest of the state bodies, will be something that will be very problematic if we reach a moment of crisis where you need a body that is trusted by all Egyptians to handle that moment of crisis as we did in 2011 or 2013. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Sam. Um, partly because of my lax timekeeping, we're running short. Um, we have about 10 minutes left, and I'd really like to not stand between you and our panel. I'd like to take some questions. Um, if, uh, when the microphone comes to you, if you can identify yourself and please keep uh, your questions short, since we have uh, only about 10 more minutes. Sir. Thank you so much for all the panelists for this wonderful presentations. Um, yes, Sir Abdullah from the ICFJ. Uh, how to get out of this gloomy and dark and non-visionary state of the Egyptian country? Thank you. Sam, would you like to? At the end of the day, this is a question for Egyptians to answer. Uh, no matter how much Washington is willing to help, or no matter what ideas Washington has, um, the Egyptians are going to decide the future of their country and where it goes. That does not mean that the United States does not have a role to play. Uh, the United States um, is a real partner to the Egyptian military, and has direct links, direct military to military links, that allow a level of frank conversations. Perhaps I dare say that 
Um, it's not, I think Mukhtar also pointed to that. It might not be the State Department who's the best uh, partner to engage but that's if the message is coming from the Pentagon, then the Egyptian military is more willing to understand. I think uh, there are some things that are really obvious. First, you need rules for the game. The worst thing in an authoritarian regime would be an authoritarian regime that no one understands what the red lines is. And thus, anything can happen to anyone tomorrow. That uncertainty is, in a sense, uh, contradictory to the very promise of authoritarianism, which allows people to claim that there's a stable regime, and thus you know the rules of the system, and you can come and invest. So one real issue, one real benchmark that the United States needs to work on with the Egyptian regime is to set very clear lines of, well, this is what's allowed. Okay, we understand that the Egyptian regime is not going to become a democracy tomorrow. But that doesn't mean that some random Italian PhD student gets kidnapped, tortured, and killed in the street. That's a very alarming development. So I think the setting of benchmark is very important. And that message to come directly to the Egyptian military through the US military channels is the way to have that conversation. Thank you. Sir, so right here in the. So they, they, they're not a coherent uh, body in, in the Sinai. Some of them um, are with what's now an Islamic State affiliate that used to be somewhat quasi-pro-AQ uh, aligned. Um, and there's a number of factors there at play. Uh, some Bedouins uh, work with the military as uh, trackers, as uh, informants, uh, and so on. Um, some Bedouins don't. Um, but most Bedouins generally do not engage directly in what's happening um, when it comes to the violent actors. Uh, they try to kind of take, take a sideline approach, not get caught in the middle. Um, the Western Bedouins are more inclined to work with the government. Um, there are far less grievances there. Um, there isn't that kind of um, history of war and um, uh, neglect as in the Sinai. Um, and so the situation, partly for that reason, actually, in the West, uh, is not as bad as it could have been um, because of the Bedouin buy-in there, large, lar largely a Bedouin buy-in there. Yeah, I, mean, I think uh, the Egyptian regime would like to be able to focus on economics uh, and has, if we look at the, the decision, the immediate decision-making upon the ascendance of the Sisi regime, a focus on economic issues and a real sense that, in fact, 2011 was not primarily motivated in, in 
large sense by political grievance, but economic grievance. Um, and that's where they expended political capital in, in the short term, uh, right when they ascended to power. Um, and I think the military and CC and his advisors uh, believe if, the, if you can stabilize the economy, uh, that politics will take care of itself, that there will be uh, a drying up of this demand for political change. Um, so, you know, one, the first comment there is that, well, then you need to be able to pull off the economic piece of that. Um, and clearly that's not happening. And so that's not really, um, a China model is, is not one for the future in Egypt. Um, and second, I think it's, it's, a, it's a poor analysis of why the uprising in 2011 happened. Clearly economic drivers were quite important, um, but it wasn't just economic. And it would be a mistake for us to imagine uh, that, uh, that a competent authoritarian regime that, that we, uh, we established economic normalcy and even perhaps growth um, could simply repress its way to stability. But I do think um, that in fact there are uh, underlying and continuing political grievances. Uh, and, and so, you know, I, I think in, in both cases, I think um, it's, it's not a likely course for Egypt. I just want to add one sentence on that. Uh, just one sentence on the China analogy. Um, oh, I think I'm not supposed to use the microphone if I have this. Sorry. Uh, you know, the, you'll hear uh, Egyptian officials and business people sometimes talk about wanting to emulate uh, the China approach of massive growth through industrialization and then exports. Uh, but we don't really see actually any steps taken toward implementing, even though the two countries are completely different, even to borrow some aspects of the model. We don't see that happening in Egypt. And there's one very important difference between China and Egypt that Peter Hessler, a uh, writer for The New Yorker, wrote about in an article last year in the magazine. And he profiled Chinese business people who moved from China to Upper Egypt to set up shops there and factories and companies in rural Egypt. And he talked to them about what they saw as the differences between China and Egypt. And they said that these Chinese uh, merchants and business people said they were shocked at how few Egyptian women were in the workforce. And that in China, one of the many factors that had led to success was that there were so many Chinese women working in these factories. And that in Egypt, this wasn't the case at all. So I, re I actually do believe that Empowering women economically is one of the most important things that Egypt could do over the long run to help its economy, but we don't see many signs of that so far. Thank you. I'm afraid to say we have time for one last question. <laughs> Who's the um, lucky person? <laughs> the gentleman in the front with the red shirt. Thanks. Um, thank you all, Zach Gold from the Atlantic Council. This was an excellent panel, and I'm glad that we ran over because your talking was better than our questions. Um, all of you are keen observers of the... Uh, so I was wondering if you could comment very briefly on why this week, last week, there's all of a sudden pro-government uh, talk shows and columnists are, uh, are willing to discuss uh, abuses. Have things gotten sort of hand, or is there something else at play uh, behind the scenes? Thanks. I'll, I'll, I'll take a stab at this, since I, I do this as a hobby to watch these shows. Um, I, it's a, I think it's a cumulative thing. Uh, I know there's a tendency uh, to... to uh, overinterpret the media. I mean, the military intelligence and other bodies, they have their hand in there. But Egypt is also not North Korea. You don't wake up and tell you, okay, this is what you're going to cover today. You know, if you go off script, they, 
So no, I think cumulatively, there's people have been fed up. Michael brought up Amr Adib. He is now personally in a fight with Mansoor Mansour, for instance. So for him, all, all bets are off the table. He's going to go all out. Somebody like Ibrahim Isa, the one thing he cares about in the world, uh, which is a good thing, freedom of speech and the issue of uh, reforming Islam, he's fed up with the fact that the government still tolerates Salafis uh, and Al-Azhar. So for some of them, bets are off the table. Is there some manipulation there? Perhaps, but it's a cumulative effect, I think, and, it, and, and a good indication of things tending to, to kind of start to get out of control. And one quick point that I think is really important. Um, we've seen collective self-interest, really, uh, among the very disparate elite, form a disparate elite consensus uh, in the run-up to 2013 and, and the coup um, that when we saw the recoherence of the state and the bringing together of, again, very different elite interests. And it is in this fraying of elite interests, not just the sort of rivalries within the state, but the fraying of, a, of this collective self-interest that has put aside political rivalries for the most part uh, because uh, we, the, the, this collective self-interest has pushed towards um, reimposing the stability, uh, recreating a functional state, and um, keeping at bay the Islamists, uh, and keeping at bay the kind of uh, the isolation, um, continuing the isolation of the Muslim brothers. So to the extent that we see this elite consensus beginning to fray, I do think that that's, that's the most likely place where political change happens. I don't see it as bottom-up anymore. Mm -hmm. I think those pressures are important. But the place where I think you might see political space opening is a kind of top-down fraying of that, uh, that collective uh, kind of self-interest. On that note, I'm really sorry that we've run out of time. I, it would be great to be able to reconvene this panel in coming months so that we can get to some of the many other questions that I know are the forefront of our, of our minds these days. But I want to thank the panelists uh, especially for, for uh, all of their substantive remarks. Um, we're in, in an election year, and all of the candidates have a lot to learn from what all of you have to say. And thank you to all of you for coming out today. And uh, we hope you'll come back. Thank you.